Welcome to Humans of SaaS. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and on this show, I talk to entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders from the tech industry who each have a unique and compelling story to share. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Humans of SaaS. I am your host, Ben Wynn, and on this week's show, we are talking about Peloton laying off 20% of its employees, 2,800 people, and not doing so in the best way. Apple was recently called out for a strange practice they have whereby they change everybody's role to associate once they leave the company, if and when they leave the company. Uh, so regardless, if you are a senior product manager or a level five engineer, you just become an associate in their database after, which affects future job applications. We'll explain why. And then Gen Z workers, there's a new study out from LinkedIn that surveyed over 21,000 uh, people in the workforce. and. Gen Z is by far the generation that knows what it wants and is going for it. So all of that today and more on Humans of SaaS. All right, so let's start off today by talking about the super fit and overly optimistic elephant in the room, and that is Peloton. Peloton laid off 2,800 employees this last week, um, or around 20% of its corporate employees. It's got 14,000 uh, people on their team, or it did, and that's on the backs of, of falling product demand. Um, they say it's partially because people are returning to the gyms now, that, that COVID's not, a, not as uh, pervasive. I'm not sure if that's why, but you know what we do know is that they were at a valuation of $50 billion last January, and now the company is worth about $8 billion. So there's been a lot of shifting. Obviously, they've stopped manufacturing their physical products. They're going, going solely doing the classes. They've ousted the CEO, John Foley, and there were a lot of reasons for that, including some leaked slides from Blackwell's Capital that gave some insight into why um, the board was making this decision. Um, and Foley has now been replaced by former Spotify COO Barry McCarthy, um, who, you know, I read his, his uh, note to the company and, and I thought it was quite good. It was pretty genuine, authentic, uh, optimistic, and, and well-balanced. And then uh, yesterday, which was Wednesday the 9th, his first company, All Hands, was actually crashed by a lot of former employees who then you know, were, were very unhappy and sort of went on these tirades about you know, selling their Peloton apparel to pay their bills and you know, that, them mishandling, letting people go completely. Um, one thing that I saw that I thought was really tone deaf was that they were offering all these employees a year of free access to Peloton. Like, I'm sure that softened the blow of losing your job. You get a $200 perk on your way out. Um, the company is committed to, you know, saying they're going to be doing good severance packages and things like that, but it's still sort of up in the air on exactly what this is going to look like. Fortunately, as always, you know, people on LinkedIn step up to the plate, sharing jobs, sharing candidates. There's lists going around. Every good recruiter I know is going through this list looking for people who were let go that they can try to recruit to their companies. So if you're currently hiring, I recommend uh, getting a hold of that list on from LinkedIn and hiring some of these fantastic employees. In terms of the reason for the ousting and what was behind this, I want to touch on a, a few key things. It's weird to see this, but, you know, Blackwell's Capital in their slides, they talked about, you know, the CEO having a lack of qualification, having poor decision-making skills, lack of financial discipline, misalignment of interest, loss of credibility. Like, these are pretty insane. And we have quotes directly from John Foley where he says things like, with Time Magazine, I think I'm not a very good manager. I interview almost nobody. Our CFO does 99% of finance and I only engage when I want to know how we're doing, but I don't add any value to that side of things. You know, when he was asked how his colleagues and co-founders would describe his strengths as a manager, he said, I'm not sure they'd say I have many strengths at all. And yet, this is, this is sort of juxtaposed with 
this overall theme that people are saying where his management style is basically unbridled optimism rather than discipline, which I mean, I can see that with the instructors. They definitely have unbridled optimism. I can't deny that I enjoy them yelling at me to believe in myself uh, every morning when I'm doing, when I'm doing, you know, whether it's a bike ride or yoga or something like that. Is that a great way to run a company? Uh, you know, I think you want to be optimistic and disciplined. And you know, they sort of mapped out the decline of the company over the last couple of years uh, and how it, you know, got up to that fifty billion dollar valuation and how it got, you know, in such a short time down to down to eight. You know, in terms of what's going to happen next with Peloton, I mean, and the, the funny thing is that this is coming off the back of a couple of other major layoffs that have happened um, and a couple that, that we know are coming out in the next few days in the tech industry that, that'll be announced. Um, and it's just a hard thing for companies to manage. We did Better.com. I covered that a, a few weeks ago when, when that was sort of a surprise announcement to the company that a ton of people were being let go. There's no easy way to do mass layoffs, and layoffs always will suck. I can't imagine, you know, firing that many people and just personally the emotional toll that it would it would take on me. And I can't imagine being one of those people, like being lumped into that group, you know, a group of people and just saying, okay, all of you, everyone you know, you've worked together all this time, you're now all being let go, you know, good luck, we wish you the best. There's no great way to do layoffs, but there are certainly better ways than how we've seen a lot of companies handling this in the past year. Uh, and I think that just speaks to the lack of empathy that, that we see across the board at a lot of at the leadership level at a lot of these major tech companies. There's a disconnect between them and their employees, and there's a lack of empathy and understanding in terms of, you know, how is this message going to be received? Uh, what's the best way for us to present this? What can we offer people? How can we make sure that we aren't the next you know, Peloton or make sure we're not the next better.com being called out by tech publications, by podcasts, by everybody. Like that should be the number one thing on people's minds. How are we going to set our employees up for success moving forward? Like, you know, okay, it's sad that we have to let them go from our company, obviously, you know, uh, and there's some introspection we have to do and some reevaluation here. But Okay, let's say we accept that we have to fire these people. How can we set them up for success in their next role? What sort of severance can we offer them? What sort of recruitment or, or you know, career counseling can we offer them? Can we offer them other benefits to pump up their resumes or you know, give them anything that will help them in their next career, host a recruitment event, whatever it is. There are a lot of things that a company could do. And I think that many of them would just say, yeah, that sounds great, but these are going to be fired employees, so why would we invest in them? Well, this is exactly why. I, it's a short-sighted thing to say, okay, we're letting these people go, so who cares? We're just gonna tell them it's gonna hurt, we'll rip the Band-Aid off, see ya, bye. You can do that, but then if you do it the wrong way and you don't do it, what, like, and you're at a prominent company, you will have what happened with Peloton happen um, and what happened with Better.com happen where it becomes widely publicized and now you're gonna have to work extra hard to motivate your remaining staff who have now been crushed because all they're seeing is negative coverage of your company in the media and friends and family are seeing it. And you know, in terms of investment, it impacts that. It literally impacts everything. So it's incredibly short-sighted to not invest in the people that you're letting go because you know they're gonna be going out into the world and if you wanna protect your brand and still grow and be a successful company, you have an opportunity to set an example of the best possible way to fire someone. Like if a company could do that, yes, it's always gonna suck, but there are way better ways than companies are doing it now. And I think leaders need to think about how they invest in that. The other thing that I think it's important to note 
you know, is sort of the source reason of like why this happened in the first place, right? Like why did a Peloton need to fire this many people? Why did better.com need to fire that many people? Why do, you know, a bunch of tech companies that I know are either recently going through layoffs or they're about to go through layoffs, you know, why are we getting to that point? It's a delicate balance, right? Because people get excited, people want to invest, investors want to put in money as the founder, as the company leaders, you want to take in more money to fuel your growth. You have dreams of being, you know, this monstrous global company that does all these amazing things. And it's great and you should be excited, but you should also think about growing sustainably over time. There is such a thing as growing too quickly. When you grow too quickly, you're, you're sacrificing quality of talent. It is so hard to hire great people and keep hiring great people. It is even harder to do that when you have to do it quickly. And so if you're trying to hire hundreds of people in a month or, or two months or whatever it is, that's impossible to maintain the level of talent and, and core values and all of those things that make companies great. And if the company itself isn't great, its product or is, is not gonna be great either, it's gonna suffer. So that's the first thing of growing too fast is it's just impossible to hire that many amazing people in that short a period of time. So you're sacrificing right there, the quality of the company, the quality of life for people who work at your company, the quality of the product, all of that's impacted from just the people you hire alone. Then from there, I mean, you're, let's say you do that, you are able to do that, you're still taking on, you're paying top dollar presumably for all these people. So you're vastly increasing your burn rate and you have then that many more ambitious goals because now that you hired all these people, you're now supposed to 5X or 6X or 10X or whatever it is because you've said, okay, if we can hire all these people, then we're gonna be able to grow this much more. And unless you've validated your growth machine incredibly well and you know that you can just plug and play, you're running a really high risk. And I've been part of companies where, you know, we've now not at that level, but you know, we hired a sales team of six because we were like, okay, we think we have product market fit and we think we're ready for this. All we need to do now is is rinse and repeat and and pitch all these these customers. And it didn't work. We hadn't gotten the right language, the right product positioning, the right messaging. You know, we weren't ready for rinse and repeat. And we had six people on the sales team, and then that had to be reduced down to two, which, you know, it's not 2,800, but it was still 70% of the team, right? Or 67% of the team. So, you know, even that, it, there's a major cultural hit. And that's the other thing that people don't think about often enough is just what is the impact of this going to be on our culture, both in terms of hiring and then the level of risk, the increased pressure from hitting these goals, potentially having to let people go. Like, yes, startups come with risk, absolutely. Growing tech companies, there is absolutely a level of risk that anyone who founds a tech company, works at a tech company, that we elect to take on. And that's the fun part. You do want some risk. You don't. If you don't want risk at all, then you go work at IBM, you go work at Microsoft, Amazon, wherever, and you know the company's not going anywhere, you know you're gonna get paid well, and you can live your life. But when you join an earlier Series ABC startup, you know you're, it's coming with a level of risk. And it's up to the leaders to be the ones to mitigate as much risk as possible. Take risks, but calculate those risks thoughtfully. Think through different possible outcomes, how things could go. Be transparent internally with teams and say, hey, like we are going to do this. We're going to hire these roles or hire this team or invest in this area. And we don't know if it's going to work. We think it will based on X, Y, and Z. We've done this testing or validation, but we don't know. And if it doesn't work, then we're going to have a good different conversation. And this is what that route's going to be. If it does work, hey, all of our equity is now actually worth something. So great. And that's fine because then you're being upfront. People know the risks when they come on. And I think one of the big problems is that we're so into, there's such a hype culture where everything is about winning and gains and just like crushing it. And 
when you don't, hiding it, and then when you do, obviously shouting that from the rooftops. And the problem is when you have too much hype and it's not balanced out with enough, not pessimism, but let's say cynicism or realism, then people believe it, right? And then people genuinely believe, okay, we're on this amazing path. Like there are no risks. Like they don't think about that because they're not being told. All they're being told, and this goes back to Peloton, was, you know, a major dip in February of 2021. Peloton dipped and fully was quoted as saying, we remain very, very bullish on our opportunity. We haven't seen any softening of demand. Not true. In April of 2021, he said, we've never been more excited about our future roadmap. Then there was a little increase. And then in September, he said, our domestic business is just growing so fast and it's still such a beautiful growth story. At this point, they're half the value almost that they were eight months before. And then there was a huge tank and they cut, cut, cut in half again. They were about 70% down. And he said, we've never been more excited about our future than we are today. So this is a perfect example. Um, so thank you, Mr. Foley, for articulating it. But it is a perfect example of what happens when you lead with hype. People need more than hype. Like you can't build a solid foundation of a company by just saying, no matter what happens, we're doing amazingly. This is all so good. Like the house is on fire, but you're there giving the thumbs up. Like, no, all good. Like we don't need any help. We don't need to change anything. This is this is all part of the plan. Yeah, I wanted that beam on fire. I think it looks better. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yet it's a trap that a lot of entrepreneurs fall into. And my favorite entrepreneurs, my favorite founders that I've worked for, worked with, interviewed, met at networking events, my favorite ones are extremely optimistic and ambitious and not risk averse at all, but they're transparent, they're honest, they're authentic, they're vulnerable, they're those kind of people. And so they're just exciting to be around and to work with and to work for because they bring that excitement. They're like, we can do this, I believe in our team, blah, 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 but here are the metrics, here's the things that we need to hit, here's how we're doing. You know, this is down. We don't know if we're going to hit it, but we have this plan in place. I'm confident in the skills of this team. And then if they don't hit it, then they're honest and open about that. And if they do, they celebrate hard. Like those are the kind of people that you want to work with and work for. The kind that are ambitious and fun and optimistic, but are also transparent and open. If someone is, it's like when you meet people and they're just so happy all the time you're like i know that that's a facade like that's not no one is happy all of the time no one's smiling all of the time like that's exhausting you can be a very optimistic person and yet still be realistic about life and things and ups and downs and i think a lot of times people especially founders feel that pressure that they need to be the ones that are always optimistic always pushing forward always you know that that central like we got this kind of character when it's in fact not the case. And you could actually make a very strong case for the hypothesis, excuse me, that leading with vulnerability is actually better. And you should be optimistic and all that great stuff, but leading with vulnerability creates psychological safety on your team, makes your team trust you, increases transparency, people can give feedback better, like it peters down to the whole organization and affects the culture in a really positive way. So I'd say transparent optimism is the uh, message that I wanna emphasize on this in terms of what leaders should be thinking about today when they're, when they're leading teams. Transparent optimism is where it's at. That's who people wanna work for. That's who people wanna work with. That's who investors wanna invest in. Investors that want the hype guy or girl, you know, uh, Elizabeth uh, Holmes. <laughs> um, you know, investors that want the hype person, great for you, that's, maybe that'll work. I, it's just, I feel like we've seen enough hype people fail that trans investors should also be looking for, um, you know, that transparent optimism. But 
I'm not an investor, so you know, take that with a grain of salt. Today's show is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. Catalyst gives you unmatched customizability, a seamless bi-directional Salesforce integration that takes less than five minutes to set up, and a world-class customer success team that'll be by your side every step of the way. Let's be honest, whatever you're currently using might be good enough, but is good enough really what you're aiming for? Take your CS team to the next level by switching to Catalysts today. To learn more, visit Catalyst.io. And if you aren't looking for a CS platform right now, you should subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn anyways. I make daily memes, we host all sorts of events, and we love to give away our swag, which has been called the comfiest swag in the industry. Again, check out Catalyst.io to learn more. All right, this next story just broke today from the Washington Post. Every employee who leaves Apple becomes an associate. This is strange. In job databases used by employers to verify resume information, every former Apple employee's title gets erased and placed with a generic title of just associate. This is weird. And the Washington Post dug into this and verified Apple is pretty much the only known company that does this. And when they were asked about why they do it, they really just said nothing. Apple spokesperson Josh Rosenstock confirmed that for years Apple has changed the job titles of its former employees to associate. He declined to say why Apple does this or precisely when the practice began. He did say, we are and have always been deeply committed to creating and maintaining a positive and inclusive workplace. We take all concerns seriously and we thoroughly investigate whenever a concern is raised and out of respect for the privacy of any individuals involved, we do not discuss empl specific employee matters. Um, so thank you for an enlightening <laughs> Uh, an enlightening quote there. This is important to, to figure out what's going on here because this actually affects a lot of employees' ability to get employed after Apple. They have to jump through extra hoops, like the company that wants to hire them has to call and get on the phone with somebody to verify that this person did have this job and because you know the database says something else. And especially the fact that it's, it's the title associate, which is used to convey junior roles, entry-level retail workers, law firm, you know, like interns and recent grads, like those are all associates. It's a, it's a junior role. So the, you know, this actually came to light when Cher Scarlett, uh, who's a formal Apple software engineer, um, raised concerns about alleged discrimination and misconduct of the company. She filed a complaint to the SEC, alleging that when Apple changed her job title to associate, it delayed the hiring process at a prospective employer by nearly a week, during which time the company rescinded the offer. Um, she said that the job verification service hired to vet her resume was unable to resolve the discrepancy with Apple. Like, that's bad and that's weird. And it's strange that Apple has not come out and said why they do this. And this is something that, you know, I talk about a lot, probably not on the podcast, but it's something that I think about a lot in my own life, right? And, the, and this is the fact with everybody that I, that I encounter who rubs me the wrong way, to say it politely. Everyone is the hero in their own story. Everyone thinks that they are doing the right thing. Everyone is the good guy or good girl. Like this is, you know, we all think that. No one wakes up and is like, oh, let me do something mean today. Like that's never something that crosses someone's mind. If, they, if it does, then it's because they feel that they're justified, in which case they're still the hero because the hero can always get revenge. You always like Liam Neeson taking out the bad guys in Taken. Like that's a weird example that that's what comes to mind, but. Um, I'm a Liam Neeson fan, so what are you going to do? So I'd like to think that this isn't Apple being like, you know, sitting up in their, their towers and saying, yes, let's be vindictive. I think Apple does a lot of rationalizing, and that's probably something that leadership is very good at. And, you know, there's a lot of information about that when it comes to the manufacturing of their phones, you know, and, and the use of labor that 
most people would probably not condone or be be comfortable with in China. But even that aside, like, is this something that they've then rationalized? Like, have they said that internally that, well, if we do this, then, you know, is there some way that it saves them money? Is it some way that it saves them, you know, I can't even imagine. I'm trying to come up with stuff off the fly, and I just and I've read through all the the articles about this, and it, it's really odd because there's no clear benefit to Apple to change it. All there is is a, a non-benefit to, or you know, there's harm to people who leave the company. And according to uh, Lori Burgess, who Washington Post featured, who's an employment law attorney, she said, irrespective of the reasons why they're doing it, this is very bad, a very bad and possibly unlawful practice. It seems to me that this action interferes with employees' reasonable future economic interests. So I'll be interested to see how this unfolds, because a lot of people are up in arms about this, and they have every right to be. Obviously, Twitter's a buzz, LinkedIn's a buzz, like people are talking about what's going on here and no one really seems to know so i i feel like apple is going to address this soon i will be very interested in learning what they say the reason is for doing this and if they change it or if they do have some rationalization that we just haven't heard of or have haven't figured out and that's what is is driving them to uh to make that policy and i think another thing to call out on this issue that that i haven't talked about before but you know this issue of titles and i i think i'm probably not the only one in, well i i know frankly i'm not the only one who um gets a little bit uncomfortable when talking about titles because i think first and foremost all of us care about compensation the most obviously this is putting aside values and the work and all of that stuff when it comes down to negotiating a role getting a promotion getting a raise you know going to a new job you know title and compensation are the the biggest things that you want to know about and the awkward thing with title is that you know compensation is more important i think most people would agree but title is really important too and often what companies will do is they might give you um, a great compensation offer but then they'll give you a more junior title or you know they might not give you the title that you want. And it feels weird to negotiate for a title because it seems like you're purely asking from a, for a status thing, right? Everyone understands asking for more money because you can be like, well, my cost of living is high. I live in an expensive city. I've got a family. I've got health issues. Whatever it is, there's a million justifications why you, you know, need to have higher compensation and how that will affect your day-to-day -day life. I'll use myself as an, ex as an example. So I am manager of community events here at Catalyst. And... You know, I've got great compensation and, you know, my, my title's important to me now that I understand a few key things. But when I first applied um, and was talking with the, the co-founder, you know, I, I was really trying hard to play it off like title didn't matter. I was like, you know, compensation matters and this sort of thing, but title, you know, I'm flexible on and I wasn't really pushing for anything because I felt like, okay, once we'd agreed to my comp and my equity, then, you know, the title's just the title. And if I'm trying to push for a better title, then it sounds like I'm just pushing for status or that sort of thing. And I think I'm, I know a lot of people fall into that trap of like, how hard should you negotiate for title alone? It's just words. Right. Like, does it really it does if it doesn't affect your the compensation you're making and it doesn't affect your benefits and anything else, then like how hard should you push for a bigger title? And there's uh, two sides to this, right? Because if you come in at a more junior role with a high comp, then, well, great, now you've got all this vertical roadmap, right? You can be go, go from a manager to a manager of, to a senior manager, to a director, to a senior director. Like there's all these other levels, there's so much room to grow. And so theoretically, as you grow within the company, your compensation and your benefits and all that will grow with you. The flip side of that is if you accept a, a lower title, 
then A, if you decide to move on from that company in the future, you know, if you join a company as a manager versus a director, applying for other jobs as a director will just get you farther and it'll assist your negotiation at that next company and you know you'll be able to go to other companies and level up faster um, and theoretically in increase your comp faster as well and also if you take a more junior title like manager you're also then depending on the stage of the company opening up the door to other people being hired on top of you right so if you're coming in to lead a department let's say or to build out a certain functionality again i'll use myself as the example you know, I was coming in to build out the Catalyst community and build out our strategy for events and brand and all this stuff, right? So a mentor of mine was like, oh, you should have negotiated harder for a, a higher title when you first joined the company. Um, because to his point, they could have brought in a director of community and events over top of me. And, you know, a big part of the reason I was joining the team was because I had all these ideas and ambitions and exciting things I wanted to build out. And by me accepting that more junior role, it left it open for the company to then have the option to bring in someone on top to say, this is my vision for all this stuff. And, and you know, then I would have been stuck, right? Like I would have been, okay, I either have to try to get my way, like acquiesce to what this person says or try to get them to compromise. But now this opportunity that was a big reason for me joining the company has been taken from me. That didn't happen, fortunately. I, we have an amazing head of marketing who I love working with and uh, Cattle's leadership did not do that, nor would they, but at the time I didn't know and my mentor didn't know. And so that was something that I was kicking myself a little bit for. I lucked out in that, you know, that wasn't the case, but I think that's the case for a lot of people. And so it's something to think about when you're pushing for title is, you know, what is the future org structure of this team going to be? Um, should I push for a certain role so that I can make sure I'm leading it are there plans, like even asking during the application process or interview process, are there plans to bring in people in whatever role, a VP of marketing, something like that? That's going to impact your job very closely. So it's something something to think about. So yeah, so I think you know with titles, again, I get it. It's super awkward to negotiate for a title alone because you're just it feels like you're nego negotiating for status. But it's important to do because it affects how quickly your career is going to advance and develop. It affects your happiness at that org uh, if you are joining because you want a certain degree of autonomy and you want to be able to do certain things. You know, you might risk someone coming in on top of you. Um, and it does affect your comp. I mean, when you come in because different titles are in different bands. And so being able to, you know, negotiate a higher compensation if your title is higher, it opens that door to faster uh, comp increases if you're in the low end of a higher band generally. So again, tying this all together in a neat bow, like titles matter and Apple by doing this is robbing people of title, which is related to status, which is indicative of their responsibilities within the organization and what their compensation was within the organization. And that's not okay to do. So even though different titles mean different things at different companies and, you know, depending if you're talking series A, B, C, IPO, tech, SaaS, non-SaaS, whatever it is, you know, it's still important to think about. It's still important to negotiate for. And it's important to use as a tool, right? Like in your negotiating kit, because it's just another lever that you can pull. Maybe if they want to give you a different comp, you can negotiate for a higher title or a different title. And same with equity and same with all these other things that, that you need to think about. So I would say, don't do what I did. Don't try to be the nice guy and be agreeable when they say, you know, 
here's the offer. It's this t it's this title and this compensation. Don't just negotiate on compensation and say you're okay with the title. Push for what you want. Push for what you think you deserve. Obviously, be realistic. Get feedback from mentors. Get feedback from peers. Um, you don't want to be rude and you don't want to be over asking, but always push. That's definitely something that I've learned that hopefully you can learn from uh, from my experiences. And for our third and final story today, according to LinkedIn News, Gen Z is a take charge generation with big ambitions. At least that's what the latest data from the LinkedIn Workforce Confidence Survey suggests. This was a survey of over 21,000 people. And what it found was that 25% of Gen Z respondents, so these are, those are people born after 1997, say that they hope or plan to leave their current employer within the next six months. Comparatively, 23% of millennials, so born between 81 and 86, of which I am uh, at the tail end of, um, say that they're going to leave in the next six months. 18% of Gen X and just 12% of baby boomers, so people born between 46 and 64, um, that say the same. So pretty close between Gen Z and millennials, but it's a major chunk, a quarter of them hope or plan to leave their current employer within the next six months. That is very large. Um, we've also apparently, uh, in the language for this article, they call it the great reshuffle. That seems like a, a we're trying to soften the blow of the great resignation, because I guess it's not people don't necessarily resigning, they're going somewhere else. So you could say that's shuffling. But for some reason, the great reshuffle sounds sounds lamer. Um, no judgment to, to LinkedIn. But in this article, they say Gen Z has the clearest job hunting agenda of any age cohort. Among those looking to start something new, they're the leaders in seeking better alignment with their values which was reported by 80% of them. They want more opportunities to learn or practice new skills, 76% said that, and more opportunities to move up or increase responsibilities, that's 61%. That intensity is closely mirrored by millennials who emerge as the next most driven group regarding value alignment, 59%, opportunities to gain skills, 55%, or the desire to try a new industry or job function, 45%. Older workers do not seem as focused on their employer's values, but that may reflect a stage of life advantage rather than worn out cynicism. <laughs> Both baby boomers and Gen Xers have been in the labor force for decades, so they're more likely to have already found an industry or a role that largely matches their values. Gen Z and millennials, however, are still in the earlier stages of sampling what's available to them in the world of work. If they've mostly tested out relatively low-paying entry-level jobs in retail, customer service, or similar fields, they've probably encountered some workplace cultures that just don't feel right. I think there's some, you know, there's some truth to that, right? Like there, there is some truth that people who are younger, by and large, are earning less money than people who are older. They still look ahead. The world is their oyster. They want to do all these different things. Maybe they haven't found something that they love to do, and they're looking to change what they're doing. Um, you know, I think that's true in some cases. And, and conversely, I think with older generations, yes, in some cases, they've found great paying jobs they're, you know, that they're happy doing. And so that's why they're not looking to leave. But that's definitely not all cases. I think that no matter what, it still comes down to like there has been a big shift in values and an increase in cynicism. And this is not just coming from this survey, but a number of data points that have come out over the last few years that show that the younger generations are some of the most, I don't know if nihilistic is the right word, but some of the most cynical about the future, you know, their own futures, the human race, you know, and that's something I can personally attest to being a part of. Like, obviously, I'm an optimistic person, but my parents were able to afford a home and raise three kids on one person's salary and it was a good salary it wasn't an amazing salary but like 
to do that today, like you want to have a beautiful house with a yard in the suburbs outside a nice city. You want to have three kids and you want to do it all in one salary. Like if, unless you live in the middle and, you know, if you're in Boise, okay, sure. You can, and you're working for a New York company or something like that. Yeah, you can do it. But that's just not realistic anymore. Like, and that's really sad because a lot of people want to have that life and feel like they can't. And so, you know, I, I definitely uh, feel that frustration that a lot of people in my generation feel where, you know, and I was born in 94 for context. So I'm just at the end of that millennial generation. But, you know, people are worried about climate change. They're worried about inflation. They're worried about war. They're worried about politics. They're worried about race. They're worried about society. They're worried about like, you know, uh, uh, economic downturn. They're worried about literally everything. Like, like it feels like a never ending stream of things that can go wrong. And, you know, I think that it's probably weird to say it this way, but one of the good things that has come out of that is that I think my generation just cares a lot more about what we're doing every day. Like we're not, I think it was a culture thing in the previous generations where it was this idea of, you know, you got a good paying job and you went to work and you did your work and you did a good job and then you came home at five and then you spent time with your family. And it was like, that was the work-life balance, right? You would work and maybe you liked your job, maybe you didn't, but work was work and you were living for your family and you were doing all that stuff. And that was what people looked for. Now, you know, it's more about work-life integration, which I sort of cringe at saying, but it's like, because we're spending and we're so conscious of our impending doom, it feels like, even though I, that's another point of itself, I don't think our doom is that impending, but, you know, it feels like we're always talking about our impending doom. And because of that, you know, we really think about what we're spending our time doing every day. And that means we want to work at workplaces that align with our values, that we have lots of opportunities at to learn and grow where there's great compensation so we can actually go and like enjoy some part of our lives, even if we're not going to be able to have the house and kids and a dog and whatever that we want to have. We also want to try different things. Like, I, I know I'm not the only person that feels this way, but, you know, there's so much cool shit to do in the world. And I think we all think about the fact that we won't be able to do everything. We have to accept that. But we still want to cram as much as we possibly can into this short amount of time that we have. So try to earn a lot of money, um, travel abroad. Um, you know, you want to work as a bartender. You want to own a dog farm. You want to work in tech. You want to, you know, go be a baker and like do like who knows? Like there's all these different things that people want to try in their lives. And I think with our generation, that's never been more clear. And with data like this, I mean, this is tens of thousands of people who responded to this. And I mean, comparing the extremes of this, 80% of Gen Zers cared the most like their top top thing was better alignment with my interests or values when thinking about their next company whereas that was 47 percent for baby boomers and 49 percent for gen xers so it's almost half of the amount like that they like gen zers care twice as much about values and interest alignment for their companies same with opportunities to learn and practice new skills or expertise again it was 76 percent for gen zers and 36 percent for baby boomers so there's some pretty stark differences between how these generations are thinking about work. And I think this is, you know, whether or not it's because young people haven't found what they love yet and old people have, older people, excuse me, baby boomers, um, I love you all, whether younger people have simply not found what they love doing yet and older people have, or whether it's just simply due to values and a more, you know, nihilistic or cynical point of view in the world, people who have teams and are employing millennials and Gen Zers, this is something that no matter what the reason is, you need to think about because your team is looking for 
a place that aligns with their interests and values, where there's opportunities to learn, great compensation and benefits, where they can have opportunities to pursue different jobs and different functions and different industries, um, and they want uh, opportunities to move up and increase their level of responsibility. So if you're looking for strategies to retain your team and you're looking for you know some things that you could change if you're worried about your team leaving you think you some people might be in that 25 percent that are that are hoping to leave within the next six months you know look at these jobs look at this survey look at these stats and figure out what can you do to ensure that your team has the interests aligned and values aligned with your company to make sure that you are giving them opportunities to learn and practice new skills to make sure they are on track for better compensation i was talking with someone who was a few years younger than me the other day and i was trying to help her negotiate with her boss who you know she's trying to get fair compensation and her boss just completely shut her down and gave her a completely you know unempathetic response uh, that was very combative and it was basically like well you're going to be fighting it out for you know the next promotion or next raise not you know okay great like glad you want to be promoted glad you want more responsibility let's set some time to like come up with specific projects or things that you can do to show that you can take these responsibilities on your next review will be in six months and if at that point you know you've checked everything off this list to the satisfaction of myself and our other team members then you know i'm gonna be able to make the case to leadership that we should promote you or give you a raise or both like that's the appropriate response and i recognize that that's still the minority of managers who do give that response but you know no wonder where we have this great reshuffle now i'm gonna keep saying that uh, we have this great resignation or great reshuffle going on I'm, st I'm just surprised how few managers take that approach, but so many, like if you're giving your team those sorts of answers where you're not in their corner, your team doesn't feel like you're advocating for them and it's combative, it's not collaborative, they're going to leave and they should leave. You shouldn't be a manager if that's the way that you're managing. Like the, you can't do that anymore. And it goes back to even the start of the episode about Peloton, right? Where, or Better.com or any of these other companies where it's so short-sighted. It boggles my mind that people get into leadership roles that think that short-sighted because if you treat your team that way, they're going to leave. That will look badly on you as a manager. So even if you're a selfish person, you should, out of your own selfishness, you should want your team members to be promoted, get raises, do incredibly well, like because that's going to look so much better than, on you. And whether or not that happens and they stay at your company, get promoted, or it doesn't happen and they leave to go somewhere else, they're still going to talk about you wherever they are and they're going to come back to you and they're going to refer people to you and you're so many things that will come back around to benefit you. Like, it should be common sense to treat your team members incredibly well, treat them like you're in their corner all the time, treat things, treat them as a coach, like treat them as a person who is on your team. It should never be combative. I've talked to leaders that, you know, have talked to me about mental health days. Like they've struggled with, with team members who have come to them last minute saying, I need a mental health day tomorrow, or I need two mental health days. And that means someone has to cover for them. And, you know, all this fighting has sort of ensued over it because, yes, the company on paper wants to support mental health and mental health days. And yet, you know, there's work to be done and things have to be done. And the manager wants to, you know, give them the mental health day, especially if they really feel like they need it. But if it's last minute and stuff has to be covered for and it's going to result in, in a poor customer experience or something else, you know, it's not always so super cut and dry, but there's two ways to slice that, right? Like you can say no, like, unfortunately, we can't do a mental health day tomorrow. You could take one next week, or you know, you need to plan better next time you wanna take a mental health day in advance. Something like that, where you're basically shutting them down, killing the relationship, losing trust, all of that, which a lot of managers do. Or there's you know what this manager did, which, which was you know, agree to the mental health day and just sort of cover for them and feel anxious about, you know, did I do the right thing? What else should I do to figure this out in the future? Or there's you know what I think the best approach is, which is 
uh, managers I know, and some including here at Catalyst, where their approach to that sort of thing is, okay, what were the circumstances that led to this situation? Because you should never be in a situation where someone on your team wants to take a mental health day and they give you one day's notice. There's a couple things that could be happening. One, they had an emergency, in which case, you know, if you're a human being, it should be very obvious to you that you should then, yes, go take your mental health, like, do it, we're going to cover for you, no problem. Like, if they had a family member die that they were very close to, or they had something like that, they had a, a panic attack, or they, you know, something happened, of course, things happen, shit happens, life happens, so we all just have to make it through those situations. If it wasn't something like that, if they're just feeling really stressed, which was this case that I'm thinking of and, and is often the case, what can you do to make sure it doesn't happen again? Can you have more frequent checkpoints with that person? Can you factor in their stress level as a metric that you check in, check in on during their one-on-ones? You know, can you better communicate an early warning system so they know for people know as a policy, you'll always get approval for your mental health day, but you need to give a minimum of X number of days notice. Like, can you have a conversation with that person and figure out, okay, glad we could cover for you this time. How can we make sure that this doesn't happen again in the future so that you can take all the mental health days you need and everyone else on your team doesn't feel like they now have to overcompensate or work, put in more work to, to cover and scramble last minute. There is always that solution. And I think that people often, too often, default to the combative approach and a judgmental approach as well, because people tend to say, well, I'm not taking mental health day and I'm busier than you. And like that, that's sort of the thing that we run, that people run through in their heads. And again, those are all sort of short-sighted things. Your team is, is your team. They're not just people who work for you. They're people who you should be looking out for and they're looking out for you. And you have to build all that trust between everyone on that team. And your whole goal should be to move everyone forward, not encourage people to be duking it out for the next promotion you know, to, from CSM to senior CSM or whatever it is, because there can only be one and whatever. I mean, those cultures are just toxic from the beginning. They don't scale. They just fall apart really quickly. I know I talk a lot on the show about empathy and work culture and, and values. And, you know, I know this is a, these are common topics. Like people do talk about these a lot on social media and that sort of thing. But I find that it's really helpful. You know, I, th I find that there's a lot of it that's just too fluffy, right? We all know we should be more empathetic at work, but like, okay. What is empathy? What situation are you talking about? A lot of people, like I guarantee you, every man, I guarantee you John Foley thinks that he's empathetic. And I guarantee you that, I can't remember his name, but the better.com CEO, I guarantee you he thinks that he's empathetic. Like everyone, like I said before, everyone thinks they're the hero. Everyone's the hero of their own story. Everyone thinks that they're in the right and they're a good person and all this kind of stuff. And that's important for us all to recognize in all of these situations. And that's why I think it's so important to get really deep with specific examples. And that's what I think that a lot of posts and things on social sort of miss the mark on, right? They talk about empathy being important, but you know, if it's not backed up with a specific example where someone might be like, oh, that's, that is how I responded to that. Oh, that wasn't empathetic. Let me think more about that. Why wasn't it? Okay, interesting. I've learned. I'm going to figure this out differently the next time that this comes up. So I like to give specific examples and I like to, you know, reiterate some of these points because again, as I say, pretty much every episode, like I'm in a bubble, a lot of us are in a bubble and clearly a massive part of the workforce, you know, doesn't get treated the way they should be treated. And they're not in cultures that are allowing them to do their best work. It just seems so intuitive. And I think one of the biggest things, I mean, this stuff should, should all be obvious and, and the motivation behind it, you know, whether or not it's because you want to be a great manager and you're a kind person who wants to do good things or whether you're just a selfish person, like, if you're selfish, then you generally want results for yourself. You want to be paid more, you want to be promoted. 
the way to do that is by supporting your team, making others around you successful. Like you don't get ahead in any industry by pushing other people down. You only get ahead by lifting other people up. And that's something that holds back so many people in so many industries where they have these toxic cultures where people are just constantly shoving each other down, trying to step on each other's heads to get to the next thing. And it's like, I don't know how many more times we have to learn the same lesson. Like the way that you get ahead in work and in life is by lifting up the people around you. Whether that's through advocating for a promotion, giving them a public shout out, giving them a hug, sending them a kind Slack message, you know, paying for their co coffee for the person who's behind you in line, like whatever it is, doing kind things for other people and helping others navigate their life. Like that is ultimately the best way to succeed because you're building up good karma. It's the right thing, you know, so those aside, it's also you're creating advocates, you're making other people around you more successful. So then more people want to be around you because they notice that trend. Like there's so many reasons why even if you're a selfish person who doesn't give a shit about, you know, doing kind things and making getting good karma and all that, like you should still be doing all these things and acting empathetically and, you know, advocating for your team. So so I think one of the big takeaways is and maybe this is a good policy for every manager going forward. Act as though every situation you deal with at work is going to be published on TechCrunch. <laughs> If that is what you, if that's how you conduct yourself, if you think through these things, like, do you want to be one of these leaders who's being called out for lack of empathy or people's skills or being tone deaf or something like that? Obviously, no, nobody does. So every time you're facing a decision at work, think about, you know, is, if, if TechCrunch were to write an article on how I'm handling this situation, would I be happy that it was out? Is this something that people would applaud or is it something people would be highly critical of? Um, all right. Well, as long as ridiculous things keep happening in the tech industry, I will be here doing this podcast on them. We have some really exciting guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned for those. In the meantime, I hope you all have an amazing week and I will talk to you all soon. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Make sure to subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us, our email is community at getcatalyst.io.